and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a little bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Matt Young. Matt is the CEO of UserVoice, a software company that helps growing B2B SaaS companies to collect and make sense of customer feedback. Appointed to the position just before the pandemic arrived, as a first-time CEO, Matt has undoubtedly had an eventful past couple of years as he's grown the company and continued to lead the evolution of the UserVoice product. Before joining UserVoice in 2015, Matt was the Vice President and CTO of Vidori, a digital marketing consulting and product company from Chicago. There, he spent seven years focused on achieving excellence in enterprise software development. After earning a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Syracuse University, as well as a Master's of Science in Computer Science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Matt invested 22 years in engineering before becoming a product leader, a journey that gives him a unique and valuable perspective. Matt's recently been generously sharing that perspective with product people at Product School and Product Camp, as well as appearing as a guest on podcasts such as The Scale Up Show, Lessons on Product, and Tied Together, amongst others. And, you guessed it, he's now here with me for a conversation on Brave UX. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, Brendan, it's great to be here, and very weird to hear your whole life rolled up into a one-minute explanation like that. Did I miss anything? You know, the whole part of me that isn't professional. But then <laughs> well, let's get let's get into that, because as far as I understand, Matt, you're the owner of a uh, fairly young and boisterous German shepherd called Banks. I was yeah, wondering, I is, is Banks going to be joining us on the show at any point today? Uh, he might. He, he is in the background. And he's been with me all day. We're working from home like most people. And uh, if uh, the male person decides to show up, you may hear some of his commentary uh, in the background. Excellent. Excellent. I was speaking with uh, Christina Vodka uh, last week and her, I think she has a, might be a German shepherd as well. I'm not sure. I'd never actually saw the dog, uh, but it made an appearance right at the end of the podcast and was quite excited. So <laughs> we'll oh, see. Perfect. We'll see how we go. We're dog yeah, friendly. Uh, it's a dog friendly show. I don't know if you've heard the the theory that a lot of people uh, have pets that kind of mimic their personality. And, and growing up, we always had golden retrievers who are adorable, friendly dogs and maybe not the most intelligent species uh, that are out there. <laughs> I was always attracted to German shepherds, just the, the loyalty and intelligence combined with the, the very quirky, you know, it takes a while to earn their trust thing. It, it models my personality really well. So we get along well. Mm, the size of the dog they seem to me to be a medium-sized dog uh, like i said they seem to have a lot of energy just how much attention does banks need uh, i walk him three or four times a day about a mile mm. and a half at a go good for me good for him he's a uh, world-class ball catcher uh, that's his, his job to do i don't know how he does it i can surprise him and throw a ball in any direction anytime and he misses 
1% of the time. It's, it's crazy. He will jump backwards off the ground to grab the thing out of the air. Mm, very athletic. Now, I'm a cat person. I hope that won't affect us nope. today. I love okay. cats too. Uh, I would I would probably have a cat, except certain varieties of them are are pretty allergenic to me. Uh, I see. But, I see. Uh, there are very few pets. I I don't think that I would deal with a snake very well. I think I'm, you know, if you were raised in any kind of religious environment, snakes are just inherently scary. Even though there's nothing really wrong with them, except for the fact that some of them can kill you. But yeah, most pets they're they're good. Cats are great. You know, when it comes, I know we're going on a bit of a tangent here, but while we're talking about snakes, you know, there is a very good reason, and I think it's a, it dates back to prehistoric times as to why humans fear reptiles, in particular snakes. So I think uh, you're in good company here as well. I live in New Zealand. We have no snakes at all. I'm about really? to holiday in Australia. Yeah, none, nothing. There is, there are no snakes. There's only one poisonous spider that's indigenous to the country, uh, pretty much untouched. But I'm about to go to Queensland in Australia, which is riddled with things that want to kill you including all manner of different species of snakes and saltwater crocodiles, tiger sharks. So um, wish me luck. If you don't hear from me and know over the next couple of months, <laughs> you'll know well. it didn't go well. Australia is the <laughs> land of animals that, that try to kill human beings. And, and where I live in, in North Carolina in the United States, there are quite a few species of venomous snakes. And I don't see them too often, but every once in a while I'll walk the dog and, oh, just need to go in the other direction. Like if you ever want to see me <laughs> behave like a 12-year-old girl who's just been the most frightened of her life, that's, that's the time you see it. <laughs> hey, so speaking of younger people, in particular you as a younger person, you grew up in the 1970s and 1980s just outside of mm -hmm. New York City from what I understand, and your yeah. dad worked at IBM and that gave you access to a PC at an early age. How did that access, how did having access to that computer change your, your life? Uh, it was, it completely set the direction of my life. This was an IBM PC one, which I think most people, no matter uh, how young they may be, have probably seen that iconic wide, heavy machine with floppy drives, usually pictured with a green and black monitor on top of it. That was literally the computer that we had. And my father, even though he worked for IBM, he was like, he started out as a typewriter salesman he, and, and worked in marketing. So it was all foreign to him. I think he was trying to set my brother and up, my brother and I up for a, a career in, in something te technological. I sat and taught myself how to program that thing and couldn't stop playing with it. I had a, a modem, which was, you know, the way to connect with other computers at the time through the telephone lines. And remember getting in a lot of trouble for racking up a very large telephone bill at one point, but I think it, it kind of was the precursor to my software experience on the internet back there. I was the kid when I was in third grade who would stay in at recess to play with the Apple II that they had at my element, elementary school. And in high school, there was no one who would teach a computer programming class. So they arranged an independent study for me with the, the physics teacher who had some interest in it. But I remember him saying uh, about four weeks into the school year, Matt told you everything I know. Here's the manual. <laughs> Go. Fortunately, Syracuse has a really good computer science program. It's modeled after MIT's computer science program. And, and that kind of theoretical introduction to computer science really uh, prepared me for all the evolution that came up over the next couple of decades. Now, it would be... Possibly unfair for me to ask, because I'm not sure if you've actually seen the show, but it seems to be fairly popular over here in New Zealand, a show called Stranger Things. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, Stranger Things, interestingly, is by two guys named the Duffer Brothers who grew up 20 miles in that direction. 
uh, in Durham, North Carolina. And the a lot of the names of the locations in uh, Stranger Things are street names from Durham, which is where I used to live. And it's, it's really fun to, to hear that stuff. How closely aligned, if you've watched the show, is it in terms of the nostalgia that it brings back for you being a, a teenager in the 80s? The uh, I think it was season three that was centered in the mall. Spot on. It was perfect. And like even the whole culture around it, like there, when you were 14 or 15 years old in the eighties, you went to the mall and hung out and that's how your parents got you out of the house. And I feel for parents these days because that seems like an inherently unsafe thing to do. But for us, it was cool. Here's 10 bucks. Go, you know, knock yourself out with four hours of wandering around aimlessly, probably much the annoyance of all the people who were trying to run their businesses out of that place. Yeah, I seem to remember there was a movie. I think I'm, I'm a slightly younger than you, but there was a movie I watched when I was probably preteen or teen, so sometime in the 90s, called Mall Rats, which comes oh, to yeah. mind when you're yeah. describing describing uh, that. Also, the the decorations in the houses in Stranger Things, you know, the, the wood paneling, the Kids hanging out in the basement uh, with an Atari 2600 or something like that. that. That was our childhood. It's a perfect description of it. And I was talking to my brother about it. My brother is three years older than I am. We were looking at it and it was like, do you look at this wistfully, like hoping for a simpler time and, and nostalgic for it? Or is it like, eh, no, thank you. I'm glad we don't have to do that anymore. And I think I'm, I'm more in the latter camp because I, I just think the advancements of society and the availability of information and and you know, better ways to spend your time is a good thing for people. Yeah. And I think every age has its challenges. And I think you're right. It would be easy to look back at the eighties and see them as the, as the, as the golden years in many respects. Days. But they yeah. weren't, I mean, uh, you know, there was rampant drug culture among young adults, especially I, I for one, I'm really glad that I didn't have to grow up in an era where, you know, social media was telling me how unpopular or unattractive or whatever it might be that I was at the time. But that doesn't mean that we didn't have our own challenges in the same moment. Mm. Now, you said something about your personality and growing up that I'll quote you on now. You said, I'm always kind of a blunt person. It's my Northeast upbringing. Now, yeah. having watched you know, several hours of, of you talk to other people, uh, explain you know, your story and talk about product and all of those uh, sorts of things, I really don't see that bluntness you know, and having this conversation with you now. So I was, I was curious about this because you definitely come across as someone who's very calm and very thoughtful. So what is it that I'm missing? Like when does this blunt part of you that you've spoken about, when does this present itself? I'm glad that you think I'm a calm and <laughs> polite person. That's important to me. And I, I think it's something that's been lost in society. But there's a time for, you know, cutting through the sugar coating. And there are two situations where I think that that's critical. The first is in business. So if you work with me, I'm, I'm never mean. Uh, it isn't personal or anything like that. But to dance around a subject is doing people a disservice when you're talking about my performance or their performance or the company's performance or something like that. Like, let's get to it and talk about what the real problems are. I think the same thing holds true with very close personal relationships. To be able to know what you think, where you stand, why leave that to chance? I mean, life is short, so say what you mean. Yeah, I think a lot of people interpret bluntness as rudeness. And there are some people, especially, I, I'm acutely aware of it now living in the South, where I think people are are mean in a more backstabbing way. They don't do it to your face. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the expression in New Zealand. Uh, they use it here. If someone says, bless your heart about, about you, it, 
it roughly translated means you're the biggest idiot I've ever spoken with. Um, <laughs> Do they give you a handbook when you move from from the north or from the from no, Midwest you, to the south? <laughs> you you learn by uh, a trial by fire very quickly what you can and cannot do, and then what they will do to you. And I, just everyone's <laughs> got their own regional differences. Yeah, I, I think I, I just value people who are straightforward in what they say. And uh, I think my my marketing team is probably sick of me looking at copy that they write and slicing out all the fluff. One thing I really don't like about our industry and technology as a whole is that the boastful claims, the you know superlative words that get put around things. Yeah, uh, one word that's banned, I will not let us use anymore is effortlessly. If you look on a lot of marketing sites for a lot of technology companies, they will tell you that you can effortlessly do this and effortlessly do that. And this is where I will get blunt. That is BS. Nothing worth doing is without effort or everyone would do it and it wouldn't be a differentiator at all. But it's it's that kind of that kind of stuff that being a scientist in the background, I, I like words that speak the truth rather than words that try to trick you into something that is not. So aside from this very direct approach to communicating with people about important matters and also and you're touching on there not overrepresenting the benefits of the product. Mm-hmm. You are someone who has been in the workforce now for some time. You entered in 1996. You've worked at only three organizations since that time. And this also intrigued me. You know, you spent 11 years at Duke, seven mm-hmm. years at Vidori, and now you're seven years and counting at User Voice. You know, when you've got a world where the average tenure is 18 months at best, mm-hmm. I would assume, in technology. Uh, this is a, this meaning you, you're a little bit of an outlier here. And so if I asked one of your closest friends or perhaps uh, colleagues, why is Matt so committed to the places that he works? What would they tell me? Uh, I don't think it's commitment. I don't begrudge anyone who changes jobs every 18 months. It is a very viable way move up the ladder, make more money. I have probably done, you know, economically, probably not the smartest move to stay places for 11, seven years, whatever it might be. But I think my, my personality is one, they would, they would tell you that I really like to understand problems deeply. I don't join an organization that I'm not interested in their mission. And because of that, I really want to understand every aspect of it that I can. And I leave when I've reached the point where I feel like I do understand it and there's nothing more that I can add to it. But until then, it's important. That one of the reasons that I am the CEO is that I'd, I'd kind of reached the end of the rope at leading engineering at User Voice. I, I came to do what I meant to do. The organization was typical of a lot of a lot of startups where they had been successful. Nothing could could stop the success of the company. They had a good idea. They were iterating on it in an interesting way. But once we started wanting to sell into enterprise, we needed some organization. We needed some discipline. That's something that I had a lot of experience with and could come in and set up. And I did that. And I was uh, like, you know, hey, there's there's nothing more for me to either uh, add value by or to learn while I'm here. So uh, I spoke with the founder of the company. I'm like, well, what's next? And well, it turns out that being CEO was next, which was never part of the, the grand plan <laughs> in my life. So you, you, you see the uh, former CEO and founder was, was a person by the name of Richard White. So it sounds like you kicked Richard Richard out of his job and sent him packing so you could step into it. That that was not at all how it went. Uh, it was uh, uh, more more arm twisting. So uh, we had been working on a, another product, and the product that we were working on was meant to facilitate uh, customer interviews. So whether you're 
a designer, a product manager, even a marketer, you probably aren't spending enough time talking to your customers and then keeping track of all the information that you learn from them, all that stuff. Like that's, that's a challenge. The initial product we, we built was set up to solve the, Hey, I need to talk to five people. Coordinating that is painful. I don't know who the, like most people tend to go back to the same five people they've always spoken with all the time. And they're getting the same point of view over and over again. Uh, we wanted to make it so that like push the button, I can say, Hey, set up five interviews for me over the next week. Uh, and we, we did that and we built it and it was cool. And everyone who uh, beta tested it for us really liked it and they thought it was great. And, and, and we were asking them like, Hey, well, you know, what would you pay for that? Like, hmm, nothing. Like, it seems like it should be a feature of, of user voice. We're like, well, okay, that's not really what we're going for. We were looking for new, new revenue streams at the time. Um, so we, we dug in a little bit deeper and they're like, well, you know, it'd be really cool if you could, you know, take the transcription and the notes from that and, and condense that into an easily shareable thing. And like, okay, well that, that fits user voices model. Like we want to take all the feed there's banks in case you can hear there that. Is. <laughs> <laughs> Loud and clear. Hey, banks. <laughs> not now, Bob. Thank you. Male person as expected. Um, <laughs> so the, the next thing that people wanted to do was, you know, take all the all the notes from interviews and, and the transcription from interviews and, and gather that in because it is product feedback. And I remember like literally I was out back, Rich worked on the West Coast. So he and I would often speak after the close of business, my time. And while he was still working his time and I was tossing the ball to the dog in the backyard. And I said, Rich, this, this product is really nice, but product managers and designers, they do five interviews a week. Salespeople and customer success people, they're on the phone all day, every day. And the, the problem is much more valuable to solve for them. Uh, he's like, you're right. And so we took the same software and made it available for sales and success teams. But the the investors of user voice, they're here to solve product management problems, not sales and marketing problems. So we didn't want to make our, our cap table confusing to an eventual acquirer or, or whatever the outcome might be. So uh, that was a point where he's like, I'm going to spin this off into a different company and you're going to be CEO of user voice. So there was some arm twisting involved to get me to do that. In the end, the company, by the way, is fathom.video. It's a, a free plugin to Zoom that lets you do all this stuff. Definitely give it a shot. It doesn't cost anything. Mm. Reminding me of my conversation with Teresa Torres about continuous product discovery. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I know that um, from what you were saying and how the product first worked, that that would have made her very happy. One of the challenges, is, as you're probably aware, which is probably why you were trying to solve it with the product, um, is making it effortless for product mm -hmm. uh, teams to actually get in front of, of customers and make, make that research happen. Uh, but I want to come uh, to what it was like for you becoming CEO out of that engineering, uh, head of engineering role. Uh, mm -hmm. I was curious, what was the first thing that you changed? Uh, I dissolved the organizational wall between product management and engineering. Also the physical wall, if I remember right, because we were still using offices at the time. The reason for that is, is pretty simple. Typically, engineering teams are gold on velocity, bugs, defects, things that are convenient to measure, but ultimately don't have that much of an impact on the mission of an organization. Product organizations are often looking at adoption metrics, DAU, retention, time spent in the application, and, and each of these things are really good for those organizations. But without those two teams having shared goals, they often speak past each other in terms of what they're trying to do and, and what to get done. That age old, like 
engineering tech debt argument, like, hey, no, we need time to work on technical debt. I, I am an engineer, so I do want to have nice, clean code and all that stuff. But you need to ask, to what end? Like, how does that benefit our customer? And because of that, how does that benefit the company to clean it up? It may be as simple as, well, if we don't fix this all, we're all going to quit because it's a mess. Like, continuity matters in the employees that you've got. But ultimately, it comes down to like, we'll be able to develop software faster. It will perform better. There are some bugs we can't fix very easily without this. Cool. Like, want to create a justifiable reason. And if product teams and engineering teams can get together and share the real reason that they're doing those things, it starts to remove some of that tension that often exists between the product team and the engineering team in this case. But there's usually some form of tension between any one team in an organization and another team in an organization. It sounded to me like what you were saying about the focus and engineering teams being around reducing technical debt, uh, velocity, um, you know, making sure that the code's clean and there aren't bugs present is missing a little bit of the product perspective, that customer focus, or am I being unfair to engineering here? What you're saying is not wrong, but when you are educated to be an engineer, the outcomes that you are gold with are high quality code that meets a specification and nowhere in academic education for engineering, at least when I grew up and probably not until the past five or six years, were people actually talking about the outcomes that an end user wants to have because of like the purpose of the software that you're building. Historically, it had always been, here's what I want you to build and your job is to go build it as efficiently with an appropriate level of quality as you can. And getting engineers out of that mindset, it's not their fault. Like they've been trained to work this way. Most engineers are introverts. Most engineers, uh, historically, this is historically speaking and, and becoming less and less true these days, which is really nice to see. Don't really want to talk to customers. They're a little bit afraid of it. Now more and more, we're getting engineers saying like, hey, can I sit in on these calls? Like, awesome. That's something that the industry should embrace and invite those people to hear it straight from their user's mouth, what they want. It's going to, engineers, you have to be smart to be an engineer. There's no way around it. Why not direct that intelligence, not just towards the code that you write or the user interfaces that you create, but really solving the problem in the best possible way that you can. Like, so to me, it makes sense that engineers should be part of the product team in the same way that like salespeople and support people should also be part of the product team. They're getting a unique customer perspective that is really important uh, for the product team to understand. And if a product team is unwilling or unable to take advantage of that perspective, they're really losing on a, a great source of information that's available to them. There's definitely pockets of design and product people that will be cheering at the thought of getting engineers and people in customer success more involved and in particular customer research, you know, having that face time with customers, being able to see or hear firsthand what's important to them, what's not working for them in the current product, you know, give, give them a little bit of a taste of the impact or the outcomes that their work in engineering in particular is having. Having. And then there's the, the practicalities of managing with finite resources, you know, timelines and, and resource allocations and budgets and all these sorts of things. And you spoke about the way that people were incentivized, you know, what, what is it they're actually measured on? Mm-hmm. How do you integrate a broader set of perspectives like engineering into products without people in engineering feeling like they're eyes being taken off the ball and 
that they're having to play catch up when they actually get back to their regular job in inverted commas? I think I would I would phrase it a slightly different way in that when you you ask engineers and and I think this is true of any division of a company whether it's sales support etc when you ask people to work towards a goal that is removed from their area of expertise and as a, as an example here growth is the thing that any business probably cares about more than anything else through a combination of retention new business expansion and upsell when you say to an engineer like hey I, I need you to worry about growth they might view that as you not appreciating the difficulty of what they do or the expertise that they bring to the discipline of engineering. And so it's important not to, you know, like those metrics are important for engineering, like defect counts and, and velocity, however you might use it. It can be a good tool to help you figure out how to make for a more efficient engineering organization. But all of that is for naught if it doesn't contribute to the company's goals. So it's an adjustment for sure. Uh, and the way that I try to do that is to start by making sure that the company and the first thing that I did was, you know, tear down the product and engineering wall, but that caused me to realize very quickly that, hey, we don't have a clearly articulated shared set of goals across the entire organization. So setting those up and setting them up in a way that's relatable, that, that any person on the team, no matter what level they're at, can actually draw a line between what they do and that goal, it's challenging, but it's really important. And by doing that, you can create an environment where people like really understand the impact that they're having in their job. Going back to the research subject, it is really a good thing to be able to, you know, get support, success, you know, on board with doing research and all that stuff. But one thing I always try to, to bring our team back to is like, let's also please be very respectful of our customers' time. We're asking them for this information. They don't want to have this conversation four different times with four different people from the organization. If they can have one point of contact, share what's important to them, and be done with it, like that's the kind of company that you want to do business with. So one thing we also try to do is really get our uh, employees to always think about things from the customer perspective with any decision that we make in, in any department. You were speaking before, just before, about the alignment of people around goals and how they can see uh, from the day-to-day -day that they're doing how that contributes to the company's growth or whatever it is that you've been measuring at User Voice. Mm -hmm. Now, I just want to ask you about something else that you've said here, and I, I feel like there's a connection here, uh, which is you've said, as an engineering leader, the primary driver of our work has always been the product team. And if there's one complaint engineers might give you, it's not having enough justification for why an engineer is being asked to build something f for a product team. So that justification, that challenge of, of, of providing that to engineering, is that a challenge that is made easier since you've been able to implement these company-wide goals that people in various teams can see how they're contributing to? It, it does make life easier, right? Because everyone's singing from the same songbook. When they, when they want to challenge whether something is a good idea or not, they can relate it to the same goals that we're all trying to get to it. It gets people rowing in the same direction, to use the awful cliche that everyone uses all the time. But earlier, I said that most engineers kind of weren't trained or aren't interested in, in thinking about like what the solution ought to be. And then on the flip side, they'll complain to you, like they're not involved as much as they want to be in what the solution ought to be. And there's there's definitely like, I'm sure that you and I, we've all been in this situation where you're, you're you know, kind of low-key judging the job that other people are doing 
wishing you had more influence over it. But, you know, be careful what you wish for. Like everyone else's job is hard and you may not understand it the way that they do. You get a variety of different personality types. There are some people who are like really leaning into like, yeah, I'd love to be a part of, you know, listening to what customers say and like, sure, bounce these solution ideas. And other people in engineering are more comfortable like, yeah, just tell me what to do, like, and get out of my hair. Like, I just want to go write code and all that stuff. So really, there's no like one right answer to this. You have to uh, assess the team you've got and who's comfortable doing that stuff and who isn't. And you're you're never going to win, right? You're always going to have someone who doesn't like the balance that you've created. But I think the the proof is always in how long people hang around at your organization. And if it's a long time, we tend to have people who stay at user voice a really long time. And, and that's kind of a, the, the only real verification that you get that you're doing the right thing uh, for the team as a whole. You know, making me remember my conversation with Matthew Holloway, who in the, I think the mid 2000s was charged at SAP uh, to implement design thinking globally. So he was based out of the office of the CEO and he was telling me the story of how they were, they were, I think they were in Germany and they were taking an engineering team out to meet with customers to try and, you know, more directly connect the, the um, inputs with the outcomes. And one engineer, the engineering lead, you know, incredibly intelligent, super gifted person, uh, just didn't want to go. So basically locked themselves in, in the bathroom and refused <laughs> to come. Wow. Even at the threat that the that the that the chairman <laughs> would hear about it, um, so yeah, yeah, you do have to, I suppose, balance the the needs of different personalities. It's not going to suit everyone um, to be face to face in in a customer conversation. Um, so the the nature of the exposure or the involvement uh, has to be calibrated. And while we're talking about personality, I want to come to something else that you've said, which is. If you asked my team, what's the most annoying thing about having an engineering person in the product yeah. seat? Yeah. It's how yeah. logical we are. And a lot of product management is driven by passion and emotion. So being self-conscious of that is very helpful. So you've seen both sides. You know, you've seen the engineering side and now you're responsible for not just leading the company but also the product uh, that that you know that is the company in some respects mm-hmm. when is the right time to deploy passion and emotion and when is the right time to temper that with logic i, I can't change my personality logic will always win it's just the way i'm wired in the end so ultimately it's not when are you logical and when are you passionate it's when are you logical and when do you delegate because there are other people who are going to think more emotionally more maybe gut level but on the flip side i, I think the marriage of those two is really important. I think most people would tell you that uh, if you're going to grow a business, you need to have really good data. You need to analyze it. You need to understand what conversion funnels might look like, what what your growth can be projected as. And that is that is a logic thing. And you need to make sure that you keep emotion out of that mix so that you don't falsely convince yourself that you're onto something that you're not, that you, you have product market fit when you don't, that you... Uh, have this great idea and it's going to be world changing, but you haven't tested it and you haven't figured it out. So that that logical sanity check is always important to have. But I think most really good ideas start with some gut level creativity that comes up. So you don't want to squash that, right? I think the you know user voices are product feedback platform. So a lot of people make the assumption that we just do in order the most popular thing top to bottom or that we would suggest that people do that. Like, absolutely not. We would not suggest that people do that. A lot of the ideas just come from rampant brainstorming of, of what should happen. There, There's no conflict. Like I think a lot of people think about 
the objective sides of product management, where you're doing surveys, uh, looking at analytics data, et cetera, as being at odds with the creative and innovative aspects of product management. And I don't think they are at all. I think that the data is the smoke that you sniff and find where there's interesting stuff. And that's when you put your, your thinking cap on and think about like, cool, okay, I think that I have validated that this is a real problem of value to solve for people. How might we solve it in the best possible way that we can? It sounds like you're cautioning against binary thinking. It's a very paradoxical question. You've asked me to make an either or decision on an either or question. <laughs> there's the, there's a, the logician in you coming out. Horrible paradox for a computer scientist. Do I say <laughs> unequivocally that you can't think in a binary way? <laughs> uh, I suppose yeah. what, I'm, what I'm saying is that it sounds like you are not suggesting that logic and passion are mutually exclusive. That it's a yeah. it's a question of how you combine them, how you integrate them, uh, when you deploy them, you know, when you get your sanity checks and 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 when you let people uh, run with an idea uh, before uh, squashing it or it being at the risk of squashing it by applying too much logic. I think it doesn't take you too long whether you work in in design or in product to realize that perfection is is unattainable. So you have to get to the point where you're happy with the outcome and think that it will meet your goals. So never and always are two words that we just try not to use because that limits thinking as well. But the unfortunate thing is that if you're a perfectionist, you're, you're kind of stuck without ever being able to achieve that. And you're going to have to settle for, for what's good enough and hope that that can be actually great. One thing that I try to, to, especially new product managers, good enough can be perfect because you didn't waste time that we could spend bringing other areas of what we do up to a higher level, et cetera. So binary thinking is pretty dangerous in, in this area where if you're thinking like, this is the thing that we have to do, it's the one thing that we have to do and it's gotta be perfect. And if we roll it out and it's not perfect, we'll never get a second chance. That is a trap. And uh, you know, one that, that it's hard to avoid just the, the nature of most human beings, but it's important to avoid. Mm. Yeah, certainly is, is a trap and you can go down that uh, rabbit hole and spend far too much time when good enough, like you said, could be perfect. Now, you're someone who's leading the evolution of a product that is for other people who also make products to better understand what their customers think of their efforts. Does that give you some sort of unique and special insight into the challenge that product companies, you know, these B2B SaaS companies are facing, whether it be to achieve or maintain product market fit? It, it does. We are fortunate to get to speak to a lot of different product organizations at companies who are just getting started all the way up to giant multinational enterprise businesses. And... I think the, the one thing that I see across most product organizations is a lack of consistency in how they do their work. Unlike sales, where there's a few like known ways to sell software products, and unlike engineering, where you're either going to do Scrum or Kanban or, or one of the agile methodologies, there aren't really agreed upon product management methodologies yet when it comes to how to do research, how to evaluate the potential of features or changes to the product that you might make. And so a lot of people go about that in very different ways and seeing all those different perspectives is really interesting. But I, you know, our job as, as developers of software tools for product managers would be a whole lot easier if we could all agree upon 
a way to do it. But it, I think it speaks to the nature of the difficulty of the thing. If, if you're a designer, I think it's easy to articulate how subjective design can be. I think the same holds true for product management. That's why a, a, a really nice framework hasn't fallen out. And there are, there are bits and pieces that you can use. There are scoring methodologies. There are a, a bunch of different ways that product managers do their job, but there isn't a cohesive way to glue all that together that, that people commonly use. Mm. So how much of your work then is involved in helping customers to understand how to make sense and how to apply the things that are being captured in user voice so that they can make more informed or better, however you want to define that, decisions about what they should do and why they should be doing it? Uh, one, of, one of the points of pride that I have in our organization is that it, people come to us asking questions not just about how to make sense of your feedback or you know what you should prioritize or how you should evaluate, but they ask us about product management in general, and they ask us about culture uh, you know, after they, they've been a customer of ours for a long time and they, they develop a good relationship with their customer success manager or they've spoken to our product team because we speak to our customers quite a bit, they will start asking us like, hey, you know, you guys are chugging along happily. It doesn't seem like you have tension between your success team and your product team. We're seeing some of that. How do you do it? So I, I kind of view our job as user voice as half software solution provider and half armchair psychiatrist for product teams. Uh, around the globe. That is arguably the more fun part of, of what we do. Not to say that we have all the answers, right? We we develop our own product and have our own challenges in developing it and, and all of that stuff. But we we get this perspective where we get to see all the different ideas that people are trying and, and see what piques our interest and, and try some of those things out. One of the adages about product management is that it's a role without authority. It's an influence without authority type position. What are the the most successful ways, maybe internally, but you know, you spend a lot of time talking with other product people out there. What are some of the ways that you've seen customer feedback be influential in shaping the thinking of executive leadership who yeah. sometimes can have very strongly held opinions, not necessarily supported by, by data as to what the product should be and how it should work? Yeah, I think... This this is a, a dramatic oversimplification, but executive leaders are usually in one of two camps. They're they're either data driven, and everything must be justified by reams and reams of data, or they are the passionate. I don't know where this idea came from, but I'm going to hold on to it to my dying day because I'm right <laughs> and I'm the leader. And there's that. So two different approaches depending on what kind of leadership team you're working with. If you're the data team, a, a well crafted here's what people are saying. And here's segmentation data around it. I know what they said. I know who they are. I know that they are a valuable customer to us or could be a valuable customer to us because they're in our target market. I followed up with them and asked them and, and verified this stuff and, and learned that, yes, if you build this, it, it increases the likelihood that we're going to stay with you or, or increase our spend with you or whatever it might be. On the flip side, if you've got the passionate leader using the qualitative feedback, is the more convincing thing to do. Take the people who are the most impassioned in the way that they explain how much they hate this thing about your product or how much they would jump for joy if you did this thing. And, and that's the thing that's gonna push their button. So a little bit of a, a personality analysis on whoever you know holds the keys to your, your decision-making can help you present the information in a way that's probably gonna be the most, uh, the most impactful. I do think that the, the data-driven people 
are going to make the better decisions because they're looking more objectively at what's going to happen. But that qualitative data, the passion behind what people say, that's the kind of thing that can really rally your individual contributors around a goal. If you share direct quotes from customers, especially after you release something, we just released a big UI change to our to our user interface. And there were some people who hate it, you know, because they were used to what was there before and you move this and I don't like that. And like, and that, that stings, right? You read that stuff. Our, our designer, she's amazing. Uh, she bent over backwards, did all the research in the world. You're never going to please all the people. So of course she focuses on that stuff and she's like, what do I do about this? But other people are like, oh my gosh, this is phenomenal. I love how you did this. I love how you did that. Like how often do you get a real pat on the back like that from an actual customer when you're an internet away from them. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. So if you're privileged to be in the line of fire when that stuff comes in, share the positive stuff, please. I know everyone's going to share the negative stuff because that's what you're going to react to and, and build plans off of. But it's without the positive stuff, it's just demoralizing. So giving that feedback to more passionate, you know, emotional leaders is, is really influential to them. Uh, the best businesses, I think, operate on on the data and the segmented stuff to make their decision. Mm. You're 100% right that the negative feedback, particularly for in design, can and, and also in product, again, I don't want to oversimplify here, but that it can cause people to obsess and to focus on that and to feel down about it and that having the positive feedback also there to support the changes that have been made is, is really important in maintaining morale. You know, the um, UX researchers in particular and organisations that have them can often feel like they're, particularly with evaluative research, the ones that are always the bearers of bad news, you know, all mm -hmm. the deficiencies and what it is that we've been doing. You know, if I don't know if you have visibility over the entire sentiment across all the feedback that's ca uh, that's captured in user voice, uh, but if you do, I'd be curious to know roughly what the percentage is between positive feedback and negative feedback that's submitted through the platform. Yeah, the uh, the unfortunate thing about selling the product that we do is that we're selling you a bad news machine. Um, <laughs> People rarely take time out of the day like, no, everything's great. Love it. Keep doing it. Like people don't do that. They, they come to tell you how it could be better. And you can see, like I, I can physically see when we demo the product to people, like the, the conflict in their head, like this would be great to know, but I don't need that bringing my day down. <laughs> like, I don't know. Are you, are you suggesting that ignorance is bliss? But it isn't, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, do you, do you not want to know? what's in people's head about the work that you're doing. You have to know what's in their head to, to be successful with it. As an anecdote, uh, one, of the, one of the pieces of feedback that we got about the UI update that we did, it was by and large neutral to, to neutral positive, which is kind of what I expected. Like we, the first iteration of a major change you make, people are gonna be wrestling with the fact that you changed something that had been the same for quite a long time. They're You're challenging their competency, right? They yeah, feel like be, they were they're good They're going to be skeptical about it. So we had some people who loved it. We had some people who hated it, but most people were kind of in the middle. And we, you know that like you make a big change, you're going to have to like iterate on it right away and take some of that feedback. Two of the critical comments, one was exactly what you want. It was, hey, you, you moved these filters behind a slide out menu. And now I have to do this extra click to do something that, you know, I, I was used to making these changes like right in line all the time. And, and um, so it's, you know, made it more annoying. You know, I have to, to click all this stuff. And when you read that, you, you feel badly 
that you made this person's life a little bit worse. Like your best intentions were there, right? You researched it, et cetera. You beta tested it. You did all this stuff. This didn't come up yet, but you release it broadly. And here's someone telling you, you did something that made the software worse for them. Uh, you don't feel good, but you have empathy. And this is like practical feedback that you can act on. It's really nice. Another piece of feedback that we got was someone who just said a mess. And our designer reads that. And of course, like you're going to zoom right in on that. I was like, look at these two pieces of feedback. Which one do you care about, right? Like someone thinks it's a mess. You don't know anything about that person, their point of view. Like the good thing is we got that feedback through user voice. So I could, I knew who it was. I know that they are uh, not in our target market. I know that they use us for a use case that is kind of a shoehorned use case that we don't really support. So it, it, it's easy to say like, hey, designer, let that roll off your back. It's it's not from a source that really, really matters. It's helpful when we can say that bad feedback is a good thing because it's something that we can act on. Critical feedback is a good thing. Uh, badly formed feedback is not a good thing for us. Like that's just a distraction. But when people are are critical, the fact that they took the time to tell you something means that they care about what the outcome is. It gives you an entree to go talk to them more. Like they basically invited themselves for an interview. That's really nice. I think when when you can speak face to face to them, they realize that there are human beings that really care about the software that they're producing and the products that they produce, and they want you to be successful. And they're disappointed that they, they made life a little bit worse for you. So they want to jump to it and figure out what that is. That turns into a net positive. You know, in the end, it's like, yeah, you know, hey, you made a misstep, but I know that you were trying to make it better. And then in the end, you, you're going to come out way ahead. I think there, there's probably a curve when you do major interface changes where you probably do make things a little bit worse right away, but you need to do that to, to make them much, much better in the end. So it sounds like what you're saying is there's good, bad feedback and bad, bad feedback. Yes. There's even bad, good feedback. There are people who can, if you focus on it too much, make you believe that you're doing all the right things when in fact you probably aren't. So you've, you've spoken about the conversation with the designer in this case about those two pieces of feedback and you juxtapose them, you know, to, to her so that you could then talk to what the reasons were behind why one was actually more useful than the other. And through doing that, it sounds like, you know, in that role, you were helping her separate the signal from the noise. And what this is making me think about is this challenge you spoke about bad, good feedback of actually being able to separate signal from noise when it comes to what we should be doing. So I'm mm -hmm. curious to to understand from you know your product leadership position, how do you not overweight the importance of what some customers are saying to you and therefore develop the product down a direction that isn't actually necessarily in the best interests of most people or in the company's best interests? You know, is this a case of quantifying the demand somehow for a certain direction or how do you think about and how do you approach this challenge? Yeah, it, it depends on your business. Not all, not all businesses have enough customers where they get the quantity that quantifying it would actually help. And in those cases, maybe it is appropriate to really lean into what one customer says because they're part of a, a book of business of 10 big enterprise customers that you've got and they're indicative of what you want to get. But in most companies that are you know, trying to, to make their business grow on volume, then uh, quantitative is a good way to go about it. Rolling back, I think one mistake that a lot of companies make is 
having their product teams, which includes design and engineering in my head, uh, be very oriented around solutions and all of their conversations around features they might build, changes they might make, interface improvements. That's the way that they talk to their customers, et cetera. And, and I think most people are aware of jobs to be done and being focused on problems, but developing that discipline of really staying oriented around problems is difficult. And I think all that goes back to the way that you ask the question in the first place. So if you're if you're getting product feedback through any channel, that might be a tool like ours, it might be anecdotally from what you're hearing from your successor support team, you may be watching like how a demo goes and how people respond to demos of the software. We try to take all of that information and see if we can detect an overarching problem from it. What is the problem that people are trying to solve? Why are they complaining about the lack of this feature or a missing integration or, or something being clunky? What are they trying to do and make sure that we understand that? The more that I can get a salesperson while they're doing a demo to not have the knee-jerk reaction of, of saying, well, you know, I need it to integrate with this in a very non-accusatory way to say, tell me about that. Like, what, what do you do with that in your business? How does it help you, et cetera? So it's, it's not about the feature or the lack of the feature, but like really taking that opportunity to get to an understanding of the problem that they're trying to solve. We always take all of the feedback that we get, whether it's through user voice or other channels, make sure that we roll it back up into a problem and then go back down and see what of that feedback is relevant to that problem. And then what, what gaps do we need to fill in by talking to people more about those problems? And, and we spend a lot of time trying to develop really good interview skills with our team to make sure that we are asking open-ended questions that aren't leading, that let people just talk when they need to. Um, one, of our, one of our favorite things to do is to put up a prototype or put up a problem statement and just say, tell me what you see. And leave that uncomfortable silence for a really long time until they're just done, done talking. And you'll, you'll get them to open up really quickly if you do stuff like that. People like talking about themselves. It's a good thing. Yeah, it's often very cathartic for the person who's doing the talking to be invited to have a conversation about something that they obviously care about. Maybe it's a tool, in this case, a product that they're using on a regular basis and being able to just air that sometimes dirty laundry, right? Or just to be mm -hmm. understood, you know, just to be heard and to, and to feel understood. And one of the things that you've spoken about previously is this fear that some organizations have or product teams have about opening the, the floodgates to those types of conversations and uh, the expectation or the anticipated expectation that might come with that from customers to actually implement what it is that they're telling you they mm -hmm. need solved um, to you know, scratch that itch to solve that problem. So how do you invite customers through, you know, as user voice, how do you invite them to have these conversations about their problems and maybe to evaluate solutions as well, make them feel valued in that mm -hmm. space that you've created, but not go so far as to make them feel like you've committed to follow through to the letter with what it is that they've told you? Yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. Um, this is where blunt mat shines. <laughs> Here we, we go. Tell people, we tell people exactly what we do with it, right? Um, hey, you know, we're having interviews with about a dozen people. We're trying to determine if this has market viability for us. And here are the criteria that we will use to evaluate that. So thank you for telling me how important this is to you, how passionate you are. I've, I've heard from you that this is critical, that this for you is a must have. You're the first person I'm speaking to. So I 
you know, common sense says to me that other people will probably share your opinion, but I don't know that yet. So we're going to go find out and I will let you know what we learn. So you want to make sure that they feel heard. You want to make sure that you understood what they said. And I was like, you know, try to play back to them. Like, here's, here's what you're wrestling with. And here's, here's where we go. And I think over the years, people really understand that like it's software development. People know how that goes now. People know that every company does not have the resources to do everything that everyone wants. They can't possibly do it. That's becoming an easier and easier conversation. And I think if you are oriented around the customer's success, it lets you in a non-snarky way. Like if someone comes to you and says, well, if you don't do this, I might have to look at, you know, competitor X. Then you can say, um, you know, I agree with you. You know, if, if we don't do this, that might be a better fit. And it's not meant to be that like passive aggressive, you know, like, <laughs> well, sure, go ahead and use them. It's like, no, you're really trying to figure out like what's going to serve their needs the best. And, and mm. a competitor might be the answer in that case. But that's where having like overarching company goals are really important. You, we as humans, like we, we want to make sure that we can solve problems for people. But if people are asking you to do something that's just completely outside the mission, like it, it should be pretty clear that that wouldn't be a good use of our time. So we're not going to do that thing. Getting comfortable being being blunt with people about stuff like that is is uncomfortable for people. But we we talk to product managers more than any other persona. And it's always surprising to me how when the tables are turned, every product manager becomes kind of a, a typical customer in a lot of cases. Like the, well, how come you won't? Like, I don't know, you're a product manager, you know how it goes, right? <laughs> you shouldn't have to explain this. The way that you framed that uh, response to the customer that was demanding that something happened or they might, you know, shop around and go elsewhere, that also just reminds me of uh, the loss aversion bias that can kick in when you yeah. agree. I mean, you have to be willing to, to lose the customer here, right? But you, you're basically saying to them, I agree with you. You should go elsewhere if this doesn't happen, which mm -hmm. the my reaction when I was listening to that was, oh, no, but now I wait. I don't I don't want to actually have to necessarily follow through with that decision. Yeah. So you're, you're almost playing some interesting psychological experiment there with just how passionately they do want that thing that they're asking for. And that's reminding me of something else that I wanted to ask you about, which is when you're out there and you're actually in the solution space now and you're sitting down and you are doing these evaluations of, you know, whether it's a prototype or whatever else that you're putting in front of customers to try and understand demand and mm -hmm. value, perhaps uh, willingness to pay, those sorts of things. What are you looking at? Like if aside from what people tell you outright, which can sometimes not be reflective of the whole truth. What other cues or signals are you looking for? Yeah, we usually ask people at the end, tell me your thoughts about what you saw. They might say something like, this is great. That's not a very good reaction. Uh, even though the words, this is great, is there. I'm looking for things like, when are you going to release this? Can I be in the beta? How soon can I have it? Will this cost more, et cetera? If they're not saying stuff like that, they're a passive on the NPS scale at best about the thing. What do you say just on that? What, what do you say when someone says, will this cost more? Where do you go after that? It depends on whether or not we've made any decisions around that. If we have made decisions, we'll be frank and say it will, it's not included in the plan that you've got, but we haven't decided what the price point is. And then that opens the opportunity to do the, you know, for the four question test on pricing at what price point 
do you think this is a bargain? At what price point do you think this is fair? At what point is it too expensive? And at what point is it so cheap that you question its its quality? We'll do that with to try to figure out like what they would pay for it. And then obviously you make a note for your sales team that that's a an opportunity for them to pursue in the future. Yeah, when they when they ask a question like that, like in my head, I'm kind of pouncing on the teed up free opportunity that's been put right in front of my face to do additional research that I wasn't necessarily intending to do right in this this call right now. Yeah, we also, I mean, I look for body language. I look for if people ask about something else. So if you're there to show off your prototype and they say, yeah, uh, I think this is a really good solution and, and we would use this. Hey, when are you gonna do blah, blah, blah? They've instantly told you that what you just showed them is dramatically less important to them than the thing <laughs> that they asked about. So even though the solution might be a good fit for the problem that you're trying to solve, it isn't the most valuable problem to solve for them. That's really interesting and that's quite insightful and it's very easy to get wrapped up in what you're there to show them and mm -hmm. feel like you, you have to fill that space with what it is the original intent was for that space. Uh, but I really like what you're suggesting there, which is you actually have to, to, to leave your ears open for those tangential opportunities to explore things and be willing yeah. for a session to be hijacked by something totally. that may be more valuable. Yeah, I, I heard in an early prototype re review we did a, a few years ago that someone said, yeah, you know, it's just hard to keep them on task. Like, well, you didn't need to because you already got your answer from them. They didn't want it and didn't care about it. You know, that's that's the wrong person to ask whether the solution is correct because they don't care about the problem. So your your time is better spent either asking about what they do care about or moving on to someone else in the end. And yeah, I think that's that's one of those things that like, sure, you might be not making progress towards the goal that you were trying to make, but free learning opportunity, take it. You spoke about the 80-20 principle earlier and so far as 80% is good enough and might even be perfect. Now, this might be a tricky one to quantify, but take this wherever you want to go with it. How do you know when you've reached the 80%? Yep. We work in a kind of unusual methodology in product development. We use ShapeUp, which uh, Basecamp developed. It does this interesting thing. Instead of assigning estimates to projects, you place bets on an appetite for how much you're willing to invest to solve the problem. And it's either two weeks or six weeks. There is no in-between. There's no five weeks, four weeks, one week, one day. It's either two weeks or six weeks. And the reason for that is you can do something small in two weeks and you can do something big in six weeks. We do our research upfront to decide that it's worth investing either two or six weeks on a thing. And then we spend two or six weeks on a thing. And then we measure at the end how people react to the thing that we've done. If people have a lot of feedback about it, it tells us two things. They gave us a lot of feedback, so it matters, and it's not done because there's a lot of feedback. It's not, it's not at 80% yet. If you get crickets, you might have solved the wrong problem or it might be terrible. It's very rare that you don't want to make the assumption that you just nailed it. That's usually not the right assumption to make unless you're getting very strong signal like, we love this. This is amazing. It's perfect. Usually with that, someone will have an idea for an improvement, so it's a, a good way to know that that there's some room to improve. But what we usually do is like, we'll work on it for two weeks. We'll let it sit for two weeks and gather feedback about it and then make a decision. Like, hey, you know, we got a little bit of feedback, but it seems like it's good enough. Or, oh, we got a lot of feedback. It feels like people are passionate. We should invest some more. Um, so it's kind of this like 
nice cycle of recurring feedback that tells us whether we should invest more or not. A lot of people make the mistake of looking at feedback that's years old or something like that. Like they're accumulating years and years and years of feedback and thinking that they've got this to-do list that they need to jump from thing to thing to thing. People don't have memories that are that long. Take the topics that are here now and critical and keep working on them until that, if the problem is worth solving, it's worth solving until it's at 80% or better. Um, so do that and only then move off onto a thing that makes some product teams really anxious that there's this other backlog of stuff to do. We don't have a backlog. We got rid of the whole thing, deleted it all, um, <laughs> literally all of it gone overnight. How did that feel? Fantastic. Oh my God. <laughs> the, the psychological impact of that, especially to an engineer who's looking at like, there's no way we're going to get through this. Like there's, here's seven years of work to do. And that's not going to stop people asking for more. That forces you to really be agile. What is the most valuable thing to solve right now? Not what's the thing from forever ago that we, we all know that we should get to. Well, maybe you shouldn't. Things, things have changed quite a bit over the past couple of years. Maybe that problem isn't important anymore. How does agile factor in the way that you're approaching the development of the product? I would argue that most teams that think they're being agile are not being agile. They're using a framework that's labeled as agile, but they're not really sticking to the radical open-mindedness that's required to be truly agile, to build something and be willing to just throw it out because it didn't work right, or to recognize that, you know, hey, yeah, I know that this customer was barking in my ear 12 weeks ago that they were going to churn unless we did this thing. Are they still jumping up and down? Did we check again? So I, I think that the way that we develop product is, is the closest to what the goal of Agile is or and, and always has been, where a lot of companies have unfortunately taken Scrum or Kanban and just fallen into like what really is waterfall, but with two-week iterations on it. And it's, it's hard to be Agile. It's hard to, you're, you're basically, it feels like you're operating without a net at some time, at some points. But I mean, competitors are, are growing like weeds. It's easier than ever to build software. It's easier than ever to design a great interface overnight with the proverbial two people in a garage. Why do you want to saddle yourself down with like years of history and take away or, or give away that advantage to another company? You shouldn't do it. It seems to me that we sometimes conceive of what we're doing as being of permanent use, like a permanent contribution, where everything that we're doing in software is so temporal. Like what, we, what we're doing today and maybe in a year's time uh, may not even necessarily be in the product and being more comfortable with operating without that safety net as you're talking mm -hmm. about, that seems to me to, you know, at least uh, rationally seems to me to be a more sensible way to operate in a highly competitive environment. Yeah, I mean, we're the, also... the shelf life of software is just ever decreasing. The amount of time that your solution will survive is just going, it's not getting any longer. Um, you're going to have to mm. keep iterating on it. That tie, though, to, you know, backlogs and, and feeling like you need to work agile in a certain way that's not necessarily in the spirit of how it was conceived with being able to throw something out if it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. we, we, we're scratching it quite deep psychological biases we have here, right? Like sunk cost fallacy. Mm -hmm. So in terms of your company culture at UserVoice and 
the fact that we can all fall victim to this, I know that I certainly have. What does that conversation look like? Like, how do you help, you know, your engineers who have committed sometimes maybe hundreds of hours collectively to a certain yeah. thing, design, you know, product managers that were really passionate about this thing as well. Like, how do you help them to feel better about letting things go? We, we try to celebrate it. That might sound morose maybe, but it, if you were an engineer and you saw that the sales team was struggling by using a sales methodology that wasn't working or marketing was struggling by advertising to an audience that wasn't responding. And that marketing team said, hey, we dropped this campaign. You'd be cheering, right? You, you want the company to be successful. You want the best possible outcome to happen. And if you put it in that light, you know, hey, the marketing team doesn't need you to hang on to this, this software. They're like, yeah, we're all sorry we built it. We're trying to learn where we went wrong in, in the discovery process. Uh, how did we fail to be iterative in this also? Like the, the bigger the investment, the I think the tighter people cling to it. But if we weren't, you know, doing a couple of weeks of work and then testing it and making sure that, you know, our, our goals are being met and all that stuff, then we just weren't operating in, in the right way. So we, uh, we definitely have a culture of experimentation. And in that culture of experimentation, failure needs to be celebrated. Not, I hate the expression post-mortem because it's a, a very negative way to look at a, a huge learning opportunity. And so I, I want people to operate without fear. Um, I want you to try something uh, rather than wring your hands over, is it the right thing or is it not the right thing? And if, if you can build a culture where failure from which you can learn is something that you know, everyone is applauding, then that's a good thing. And if we're making good decisions on the heels of that failure, then I think that's the best way that you can grow quickly as well. Yeah, I've got a potentially terrible sailing analogy here. <laughs> <laughs> and not being a sailor, I actually have no idea whether or not oh, this is well, Me neither, so this is going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it was speaking to me of uh, scraping the barnacles off the off the bottom of the boat. It's a, it's a way in which you frame uh, your ability to let go of some of the things that you know, they may have like accumulated, but they're actually at risk of slowing the ship down. So we mm -hmm. do actually need to sort of clean those out on a, on a semi-regular basis and not feel bad about doing that. Like you said, you celebrate that at user voice. Now you've said one of the things that most product companies avoid is the notion of removing a feature or a barnacle in my terrible mm -hmm. analogy. Yep. Everyone is deathly afraid if just one person uses that feature, they're going to be really annoyed by it. But it's distracting. You have to support it. It's part of your code base. So sunsetting features is just as an important part of managing product as adding features. So how do you know when it's time to kill a feature to scrape that barnacle off the bottom of the boat? Yeah, if you can convince yourself to be really objective, then you can set yourself a threshold. You can say, you know, what's, you know, whether you're a daily, weekly, or monthly active usage software tool, what is the number at which you open the conversation? And what is the number at which it's gone? Because you, you don't want to do it suddenly. And if you give yourself, you know, some objective measures, and those objective measures should not be, I think in most cases, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to say the right thing here or not. I don't think it should be a, a an absolute number. It should be a percentage of your user base. What's the percentage of your user base? When it drops below this percentage, we are going to put it on the chopping block and start making plans about its potential sunset. And at what point is it going? So if you, 
if you have those two lines, then you can start getting your teams prepared for like, hey, what happens when we get rid of this? Who's going to pitch a fit? Who's going to churn? Like, let's do the analysis of that. We can make exceptions, right? If our largest customer, who's an outlier in terms of what they spend, and it would put us into financial trouble, uses that thing all day, every day, like, mm, sorry, it's not going. Like, that's a fair decision to make. But if, you know, we have a customer and that customer is particularly cranky and you're saying to yourself, oh, I'm going to hear from, from Joe about this thing. He's going to yell at me. Like, that's that's not a reason to keep this thing around. Like, the the costs are incredible. Support documentation, the tickets that you get, the the code base that you have to maintain, the tests around it, the the fact that someone might come out of the woodwork and start using it that wasn't using it before, and then you're stuck even longer with the thing. So try to give yourself like, here's the criteria by which we'll decide whether or not something needs to get into the red zone. And then that's when we'll have a discussion about it. And so everyone's a little bit more comfortable. We have had time to get used to it. The whole team is aligned around it in the same way that we're sharing, hey, here's what we're thinking about building. We're also sharing, hey, here's what we're thinking about getting rid of um, with the whole team. So it's it's not a surprise. It's not something that people haven't had a chance to get used to and everyone everyone can get more comfortable. And then then it becomes like this breath of fresh air, like, oh, wow, nice. We don't have to deal with that anymore. Yeah, it sounds like a really healthy framing for everyone that's working to understand the addition and also the subtraction of features over time. It's also, you're making me remember when I went through and uh, changed my business and uh, essentially got rid of all the cranky clients that I wasn't having a lot of fun with servicing as, as the agency when we were doing agency work. And it was such a great feeling when you were able to realize that life is just way too short to be putting up with some certain behaviors and that regardless of the dollar figure, as long as it's not fatal, that it's actually such a boost to team morale and also to your own sanity when you're able to be strong enough to say, actually, um, you know, this isn't, this isn't working anymore and, um, and take that stance. Yeah. Now, we had a, uh, we had a deal that we signed not too long ago where we, we closed the deal and we started onboarding with them and our onboarding is, is pretty hands-on with people. We, we try to, get people steeped in best practices, help them configure everything, all of that stuff. And on the first call, there was a, hey, you told us that the software would do this. How do we do that? And our software doesn't do that. And so the first thing that we do is have this panic attack of like, you know, did our, one of our salespeople like promise something we couldn't do. So we went back and looked at all the calls and all that stuff and we didn't do it. And, you know, we, we went and told this person like, hey, our software doesn't do this. We know that you asked the question during the demo and we kind of pride ourselves on being very transparent about what our tools will and will not do. And we told you that it doesn't do that. And this person came back and said, well, you know, it, it's got to, or this just won't work. And so we said, okay, then it won't work. And even though you'd signed an annual contract and even though you'd paid us, we refunded their money and, and said, thank you. Cause I don't want to sign up for when we talk to them about renewal in 10 months, they're, they're just going to be a, a drag on the morale of the team on God forbid, we might even say to ourselves, God, should we just build this to keep them quiet? Like, that would be the wrong thing to do too. It's, it's not my job to make the world good purchasers of software. I want to solve the problems that we solve for the people it's appropriate to solve them for and make sure that they love what we do and, you know, love their interactions with us. And if you don't fit into that bucket, that's taking away from time I have to meet those other goals and the time I can spend with, with the customer base that can see value in the products that we offer. It's mm, so true. And Matt, you've said something else recently that I've also come to accept as being true. And I'll quote you uh, for one last time today in our conversation. <laughs> you've said, your life is not your job. 
to me, the most important thing is the positive impact you have on earth and the time that you are here, most specifically the people around you. What was it that made you realize that? Oh, this is maybe getting a little, it, it strikes a nerve a little bit. I'm uh, a pretty shy person naturally, although I, I, you know, being a shy person, being an introvert doesn't mean that I can't speak confidently about the work that we do and all that stuff. But I, I always viewed work as this like safe space for me. It's the place where I'm confident. It's the place where I feel like I deliver value to others around. But there, there come times when I, I overinvest my time in work. And I realize that I am not being the best friend that I could be. I'm, I'm using that as like a security blanket to get away. And, and every time that I choose my friends over work or a vacation over work or uh, helping one of my employees ahead of spending time doing something for myself or whatever, I feel better. And that's for, for a lot of type A people and especially in, in technology, there's just this grind, grind, grind culture. And I, I, I just turned 50 last year. And you, know, you, you realize you're well beyond the midpoint of your life. You have fewer days ahead of you than you do behind you, you better make sure that you get out of your life what you want out of your life. And I like to work and I like the stuff that we work on and I like working with the people that I work with. And I like having this conversation with you and talking about it, but there's my dog back here that I like too. And, and there's the other job I have DJing in a club that I love and I love playing pinball machines and fixing them and restoring them. And I like going on roller coasters and I want to do all those things. So I want to do those things too, but I'm never going to be the guy that gets in your way or forces my views on you and all of that stuff. And that's, that's one of the areas where I wish society would take a breath and, and be a little bit more kind to one another. That's a really important message to end on. Don't let the grind grind you down, right? Nah, it's not that important. Uh, I mean, how long does software last? A year. I mean, if, if I were to drop dead tomorrow, every professional trace of me would be gone within five years. It's just the nature of the business. Not a testament to the quality of work that you do. Should your legacy be a piece of software? No. It's a good question. It's a really good question. Matt, this has been such an enjoyable and wide-ranging conversation. I feel like we've certainly, you've given me plenty to think about and hopefully for the people listening to you also, people who are listening, we've given plenty to think about as well. Thank you for sharing your stories and your insights with me today. Yeah, this was a load of fun. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, you're most welcome. It was definitely my pleasure, Matt. And hopefully it's not the last time that we get to speak. If people want to find out more about you, about User Voice and the things that you've been doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, our site is uservoice.com. And whether or not you're, you're interested in our software solutions, we, we try to share most of what we learn through blog content. I'm not a big believer in like thinly veneered marketing content as, as thought leadership content. So hopefully you can find some interesting stuff there. We post on, on LinkedIn, all that stuff too. I would be a huge hypocrite if I didn't also accept feedback about what we have to say or, or product management in general. So by all means, if you want to chat about product management or anything I've said you violently disagree with or violently agree with, uh, <laughs> drop me a line at matt at uservoice.com and, and that's always a, a welcome reception. 
Awesome. Thanks, Matt. And to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Matt and user voice and all the great things we've spoken about. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast, subscribe, and also pass the podcast along just to maybe one other person who you feel that would get value from these conversations with these leaders at depth. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Brendan Jarvis or there's a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes or you can head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!